You're listening to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes with Lou Anders. Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Humphrey. And I'm Dave Robertson. And you're listening to the Roundtable Podcast and this week's 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is an opportunity for Brian and I to sit down and meet with these astonishing individuals that are so generous in sharing the mic with us and helping us with our workshops. And uh, today, Brian, what a delight. Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness, yes. Have you heard the phrase, sir, one door closes and another one opens? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, sure. Well, I'm, gonna, yeah. I'm here to tell you that I'm pretty sure the author of that phrase did so after hearing the story of our guest host. Mm. Uh, in fact... If one were to believe in fate, one might think he had been groomed by destiny. Now, the first significant influence on our guest host was a Saturday morning TV show back in the day called Land of the Lost. Now, oh, I don't yes. know if, do you remember that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I was smitten by it, the same as many kids were. Uh, it's about a family that gets trapped in the land of dinosaurs and proto-humans. I didn't realize, Brian, that that was actually written by the likes of like Larry Niven and Ben Bova and Theodore Sturgeon. They were contributing authors to this experience. So it makes sense why that caught our attention so much. Same with our guest host. Now, there was another very cinematic moment. It plays out in my brain like this. When our guest host, while exploring in his grandparents' basement, discovers an old paperback, actually four of them, the four science fiction Hall of Fame volumes. And, and with this treasure, he consumes them, and his mind is infused by the astonishing wordscapes of Liber and Moorcock and Ellison, among others. And it's interestingly, about this same time was the moment when his father shoved a copy of Edgar Rice Burroughs' Princess of Mars into his hands and says, read it. Now, you see what I'm saying here? This is groomed by destiny, right? Oh, yeah. Now, it should be no surprise that as a teenager, when his family took a trip to France, rather than going to the Louvre or the Eiffel Tower, our guest host dragged his parents through the back alleys of Paris in search of indie comic shops and rare Neil Adams Batman comics. Now, he also played a lot of role-playing games as a kid. What a shock. Uh, but in <laughs> high school, interestingly, he left science fiction for John Irving and Tom Robbins. And in college, it wasn't literature, but theater that captured his imagination. Brian. Now that's a shock. Yeah. Add another check <laughs> next to the actor becomes writer tally, won't you? That's right. Absolutely. Yep. I think we're up Click. to like 26 now. Um, yeah. He studied acting in Oxford and London, directed plays in Chicago, which led to working on sets in Los Angeles. Now, in 1994, and here's the, again, groomed by destiny, the UK's Titan Publishing was about to launch its first Star Trek magazine, and our guest host became their LA liaison, producing 30 articles a month and camping out on the Star Trek and Babylon 5 production sets. And it bears mentioning as a testament to his prowess that, that the executive producers of both Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5 considered our guest host their preferred journalist when it came to covering their respective shows. Now, talk about doors closing. Deep Space Nine, Babylon 5, closed, canceled, shut off the air. But 
He was then invited to fly to San Francisco and become executive editor at bookface.com, which Brian was an online company providing non-downloadable and non-printable books and short stories for free online. Now, this Ooh. was prior to the whole ebook phenomena. Right. And while the company didn't make it, again, our guest host was being groomed by destiny. Now, it was around this time that Prometheus Books decided it was time to start a science fiction imprint, so they put an ad in the paper. Now, at the time, our guest host was entangled in a morass of magazine production drama, but was tricked by his wife into submitting for the position with the old lore, it never hurts to hear what they have to say. And apparently what they had to say was pretty appealing. And Prometheus showed the keen insight and wisdom in hiring our guest host. Uh, the imprint was named Pyre. And during his tenure there, which he still, of course, is as editorial director, our guest host has been nominated for a Hugo Award six years in a row, 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, winning in 2011 for Best Professional Editor Long Form, and he's been nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award, the Locus Award, the World Fantasy Award, the Shirley Jackson Award, and a Chelsea Award for Best Art Director in 2007, 9, 10, 11, and 12, winning in 2009, which makes him the complete publishing package in one brain and earning him the title of Avatar The Last Bookbender. <laughs> Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair at the round table, which in honor of this occasion is now named Bald Guys Talking, Mr. Lou Anders. Lou, <laughs> thank I, you for that. I, I can only imagine what a frothing mayhem your schedule must be. So thank you for joining us, man. We really appreciate it. Yes. You yeah. have uh, simultaneously made my head swell and made me feel about 100 years old. <laughs> I know all of that information stretching I've done back. all of that. I must be done. <laughs> oh, God. We hope not. There ain't no way, dude. All right. <laughs> let's get into this because we have questions, sir. I'm gonna, oh, yes, I'm gonna, we do. I'm going to hit the timer here for our 20 minutes with, which we will, of course, ignore. But hey, you know, it's always good to have goals, as Jared Axelrod yeah. said. Um, and uh, I'm going to take lead on this one, Lou, and ask you a question. You've worked with some astonishing authors in your tenure at Pyre. Um, Joe Abercrombie, uh, Mike Resnick, Michael Moorcock, holy smokes. Um, and I was wondering if you'd be willing to share, for the benefit of our listeners, um, what was one of your best experiences with these authors during your tenure there in terms of uh, a, a pr the approach, the relationship, the dynamic between editor and author. Can you describe what one of uh, what an ideal scenario was and, and uh, help explain that to our listeners? Well, yes, I can. And I can even tell an anecdote about it. Um, a lot of my authors are my good friends. And, and I don't know how rare that is in the business. I think for some people that's very rare. But I'm, I, I consider myself very good friends with a lot of them. Um, it, it, you know, I grew up reading Michael Moorcock. I read Michael Moorcock yeah. when I was 12 and 13 and just devoured the Eternal Champion series. And, um, I was having dinner with Mike in a Mexican restaurant, a not very good Mexican restaurant, surprisingly in, in, in Austin, Texas. And at the end of the meal, he says, Lou, I've got, I've got Stormbringer in the boot of the car. If you'd like to have a go with it. <laughs> uh, you got the what and the what? <laughs> I beg your pardon? <laughs> I didn't think they'd want me bringing it into the restaurant. And so we walk out to his hatchback, and he pulls out this black sword. 
Um, there was an outfit in Europe that, that made a very limited run. I think they only made like 10 or 15 of them to Mike's exact specifications. Oh, my God. They turned around and sold for something ridiculous, like seven or $8,000 each. Of course. And they gave him the, the prototype. So it's the closest thing to Stormbringer that exists in the world. It's the first one made to his exact requirements. And it's huge. It's a broadsword. No, and it's 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 a it's a two-handed broadsword. It's ginormous, and he hands me this thing, and I'm standing in the parking lot in, under the moonlight, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm 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 looking at it, and I'm going, oh, this is nice, and how much does this weigh? And oh, it's very well balanced. Not that I would know, and 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 a voice in my head goes, you know, quit quit acting so serious, quit trying to be a professional. The the 13-year-old in you will never. <laughs> <laughs> don't waste it over this. You're holding Stormbringer. And so I just, I got to And I go run around the parking lot swinging that thing round and round and round. <laughs> Shouting out, blood and souls for Ariok. Ah! You know it can twist in your hand without without you meaning it to. That's right. But that's got to be one of just my favorite memories from this entire thing. Oh, man. That's astonishing. That, that and, and like you say, you held a piece of history. Well, you know, you talked about how in Land of the Lost, you know, it was written by Bova and, and, and Theodore Sturgeon and Larry Niven. And, and I, once I got in this field, I went and looked at the, you know, my bookshelf in my room in my folks' house. And I saw that I've been, the, the people I'm friends with have been in my life my whole life. And I just didn't realize it. They were in your head the whole time. You just... they, were, they were always there. And I go back, oh, look, that was written by Mike. You know, obviously I was, I was a... Uh, Talking with J. Michael Straczynski, and I and I we get on the subject of comic books, and I'm I'm going, you know, there's there's this we're talking somehow Two Face comes up, and I go, you know, one of the best Two Face stories ever is not in Batman, it's in a Team Titan spotlight where Two Face takes on Cyborg, and Joe goes, yeah, I wrote that one. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's happened over and over. Um, I think I blew Walter Koenig's mind one. We're getting on a tangent, but I think I blew Walter Koenig's mind. Uh, I was sitting with him in his trailer, and we talked for a while. And at the end of it, and I don't fawn on celebrities. I think I got along with celebrities because I pretty much ignored them. Yeah. And, um, you know, I would go to the set and take a book, sit in the corner and read, and just pay them absolutely no mind. It drove them crazy. And they all come up to me one by one to figure out who this guy was and didn't care who they were. Um, so Walter and I talked for about an hour in his trailer. At the end of it, I said, look, I just got to tell you, you did one thing that changed my life. And... I could see his, his guard go up, and he's like, oh, I thought this guy was cool. He's about to ask me about, you know, my phaser. And, uh, and I said, that, that episode of the gold sleigh stack on Land of the Lost. And his mouth dropped up, and he goes, no one has missed that to me in 15 years. Mechanic <laughs> <laughs> wrote the episode where they meet the gold sleigh stack, who's come, he thinks, back in time, but actually forwards in time. You remember? Oh God, no! I'm sorry. That's that's. <laughs> uh, sorry, no way. They meet Enoch the Gold Sleestack, who who is all superior and snooty, and tells them that he's from the future where Sleestacks have evolved into a superior race. And in the course of it, one of them says, "Blah blah blah, the lost city." And Enoch's like, "What lost city?" And they take him and show him, and it's his city falling into ruin. And he realizes the Green Sleestacks aren't his ancestors; they're his descendants, and that his race devolved. Oh wow. And that's what they turn into, and he's humiliated and devastated. It's an incredible episode. Well, and you wouldn't see that kind of reversal in, in, a, in a children's show. I mean, they brought a whole level of sensibility to that series. I wanted to dig into something. Um, I really enjoyed, I, I went back and I listened to your interview with Writing Excuses. 
And um, you said something about the antagonist that anybody who's listened to our podcast more than once knows that I'm kind of obsessed with with antagonists. Um, and so I loved what you said about the antagonist being the character who's blocking the protagonist's journey and yet may not necessarily be the or a bad guy. Um, and you gave a really clear example from The Dark Knight where the true antagonist turned out to be a very different character from who most people would immediately characterize as the antagonist. And I wanted to ask you, and maybe this is a two-part question, but how important is it for the lines to be clearly drawn for an audience between protagonist and antagonist when you're dealing with a longer form story, and if the majority of the audience or the readership has trouble correctly pinpointing who the antagonist really is, then is it, like in the case of The Dark Knight, truly a well-written character and a plus in the writer's score column? Or is it possible that maybe it was too subtle or too obscure for the writer's target base and maybe a missed mark or under-executed effort? Brian, that's about five questions. Yeah, dude. Uh, <laughs> I'll, start with, uh, I'll start and just say very important. And okay. two, um, there's a, Stuart Copeland of the police. There's a documentary where he's talking about how he went into somewhere like the African Congo to meet some tribe that you know only encountered white people once every ten years, and studied drumming from them so he could learn a very particular beat and bring it back and use it in the album. And the interviewee says, "Oh, come on, man! How many of your listeners are really going to get all that?" And he said, "Oh, none of them, but they'll like the music better even if they don't know why." Okay. There you go. It's not important for the yeah. reader to understand the mechanics of storytelling. It's extremely important for the writer to understand the mechanics of storytelling. Um, in that, in terms of antagonists and the lines drawn, uh, you know, to, to, for people who may not have heard the Writing Excuses podcast, I was taught screenwriting by a man named Dan Decker, who worked out a character-based uh, approach to screenwriting that takes the traditional three-act hero's journey type stuff that everyone in Hollywood does and instead of approaching it in terms of plot, approaches it in terms of character. And, uh, and that gives you plot. Plot is what arises out of the interaction of character. And sure. so it says there's three characters in the film that matters. The protagonist, the antagonist, and what he calls the window character or, or relationship character, he used to call it. And um, the, the relationship character is the character who holds the moral compass of the lead character. It's the character that has something that they can see in the main character that they're trying to tell the main character that the main character doesn't want to listen to. And the tension in their relationship is that they have wisdom to impart that the, that the main character resists. And their relationship reconciles before the end of the film, and that wisdom is, is finally accepted and passed on. And it's the acceptance of that wisdom that allows the main character to, to, to win. And then the antagonist is the person who is placing obstacles in the path of the protagonist. And the classic example is Casablanca. You know, in Casablanca... Rick thinks he is done with fighting. He thinks he's a man done with the world. And uh, the relationship character is who? Frenchie. Oh, yes. Claude Range. Louis Renault. He says, I think you've got the letters of transit. I think you're still a sentimentalist. I think you're not done fighting. And they make a bet as to whether or not Rick still has a heart. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, Louis Renault is not a nice guy. He's blackmailing a young girl to sleep with her. He's working with the Nazis. He's completely happy being corrupt. But he recognizes that Rick isn't done fighting. And he's correct in that regard. And when they say it's the beginning of a beautiful friendship, that's the reconciliation of their relationship. Now, what Rick wants in the film is Elsa. And so when you ask people who are the bad guys, they always say Major Strasser, the Nazi. But Rick wants the girl. Major Strasser mm -hmm. wants Victor Laszlo away. He says to Rick, help me put Victor Laszlo away and you can, you can tap the girl. I don't care about her. So even though he's a Nazi, he's facilitating what Rick wants. He's not our opponent. 
our opponent is Laszlo, the one threat to Rick having Ilsa. See, that makes so much sense. That that makes yeah, so much sense yeah. to to articulate, and and we found that time and again in the in the podcast that we always go back to the character, and it's the character arc that that we tend to focus on more than anything else. That that in world building details because we're nerds, um, <laughs> but but that why isn't that? We we hear so much of the hero's journey. We hear so much of the three act structure and and plot and rising action and falling action. That makes so much sense. Why isn't that the the, the cornerstone of of authorial right. storytelling? You know, it needs to be. Dan Dan made a study of film for years, and he used to get. He's moved since he's gone into theater now and runs a theater company in Las Vegas. But for a time, he would get. He was based in Chicago, and he'd get flown out to L.A. every weekend to buy, buy the major studios to teach their development executives what to look for. Um, and, uh, you know, to go back on The Dark Knight, I mean, what, is, what does Batman want in, in, in specifically the second film, The Dark Knight? What does he want? He wants to hang up his mask. He wants yeah, to, he wants to be done. Yeah. So, so, Rachel, you know, you said if, if, I, if, if we didn't need a Batman anymore, you'd wait for me. And she says, don't make me your help for a normal life. Uh, he wants to quit, and he sees Harvey Dent as the way to quit. Harvey's put away 250 gangsters in a day. That's better than Batman has ever done. Maybe Gotham can have a white night, not a dark night, and I can quit and go marry Rachel. So his antagonist is who? That who's keeping him from quitting? Uh, Harvey, Harvey Dent. Yeah, it's not the Joker. The Joker has to take his mask off. It's Harvey right. Dent. I, I only, and as a disclaimer, I only know that because of writing excuses. Because <laughs> I, was, I was with everybody else. I was like, it's the Joker, but it's totally not. And you're absolutely right. No, and the Joker's the mentor character. They, Dent is the antagonist because Dent is not the man Batman thinks he is. You know, even before he's scarred, Dent makes the weak choice over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, he's about to shoot the crazy guy to find out where Rachel is. And Batman's don't let him see you do this. They see him do this. It's all over with. Batman's propping him up to be a better man than he really is. And Batman's failure to see the flaw in Dent's character is what's preventing, you know, and so Dent, by not being as good a person as Batman thinks he is, is the antagonist, by failing to step into the role that Bruce Wayne is carving out for him. That's intriguing. Uh, As as you say that, as you say the Joker is the mentor character, they set him up as that all the way back in the killing joke. Yeah. Was was the first time he really became that sort of, let me show you what you really are, Batman. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And the, the you know the Joker in the in the scene in the in the interrogation room, it says to him, "Don't act like them. You're not like them. Even if you want to be, yeah. you're like me." And and you know throughout the film, the Joker says, "Do you know how I got these scars? Do you know how I got these scars?" And the and the third time he says it, because things always happen in threes, "Do you know how I got these scars?" Batman says, "No, but I know you're going to get these," and shoots him in the face. And the Joker doesn't say, "You shot me in the face with a knife, you fuck." He he starts laughing because. <laughs> Gets it. Batman has just told his first joke. Batman, the entirely humorless character, has just told a joke. Right. A bloody dark joke. Yeah. It's right. the reconciliation of their relationship. You know, that's the reconciliation of their relationship. That's the moment in which Batman says to the Joker, I get what you've been saying. And he tells Gordon, tell him I did it. I'll be the Dark Knight. The Joker is teaching him, you can't retire. You have to embrace your role as the Dark Knight. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Lou Anders after this brief promotional break. Hey you, stop hiding behind that sofa. Come out from back there. Your sofa wants to talk to you, wants to play footsie with your mind. Listen to it, relax, let it in. Starship Sofa, the first podcast ever to win a Hugo Award 
with weekly stories from the world's best authors. Michael Moorcock, Peter Watts, Joe Haldeman, Peter F. Hamilton, and many, many, many more. With news and reviews and interviews. Bradbury, Pole, Wolf, and Mievel, the sofas chewed the fat with them all. Facts and fictions, articles and particles. Oh, why aren't you listening? StarshipSofa.com Your best science fictional fix this side of the coffee table. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Lou Anders. Lou, let me ask you, do you do you find yourself in a mentor position as an editor with some of your writers? With some of them. Uh, some of the writers that I work with are, are working at such a high level that I... Yeah, you're not going to mentor Michael Moorcock or... or Ian McDonald. I'm yeah. I'm going to correct his spelling like crazy, but I'm not going to mentor <laughs> <laughs> You know, other times, I've, I've, it, it really, it's book by book and case by case. I've, I've moved chapters. I've, I, early, we, you know, we had one person who wrote a character one way and it completely veered in another direction. I went back and showed him in his text how that wasn't what he was writing and proved to him by, you know, by, you know, look at this here, look at what he does here, look at what he does here. He's actually not who you think he is. And the guy saw you write and changed it. Um, it, it really, it really varies. Okay. Okay. And well, I don't pose i mean it's 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 their book you know it's it's better for them to do it their way and be happy with it and have the critics say i was right than for me to pretend it's my book and make a change that they object to sure sure um i i want to ask you something that's kind of it's uh it's not exactly craft but um as an as an actor i was you know i was it was brought to my attention sometimes about how crazy and wacky some of the things that actors do to try to get the attention of agents and directors and and the like um you know sending dolls that have their own face on them to to try to you know do something different (laughs) have you ever had anything weird come across your desk from from a writer who's trying to get your attention and in, in, in film, you get that. People, uh, you'll get, you know, there's the, my friends in, in, in Hollywood would talk about weird things that got sent. But um, I really haven't. I, I there's, there's uh, some people will try and bribe you. It's not even a bribe. It's just like, hey, while you're reading my script, let me send you this. I did that. Let me send you one of these. And I usually try and say, no, please don't. I, you know, I ain't got time to read that or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, you know, it's not it's not a sea of, of crazy manuscripts written in crayon. It's a it's a, an enormous number of of okay efforts. You know, it, 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 there's a whole lot of, of of manuscripts out there which are good, not great, which are B's, right. not A's. And uh, what it is is it's not even a sea of mediocrity. It's a sea of pretty good efforts. And you're right. looking for the one or two gems in all that. You know, most. Who, who can actually complete a, a manuscript have mastered at least a base level of professionalism because it's hard to write a book. Sure, sure. Now, is there something that you see a lot from from those that are, as you say, not not mediocre? They're good, but they just aren't there yet. That if they just did this, they might be able to push it over that edge. Oof, that's a broad question. You know, it depends. Yeah, it's on, how about it's on top, a very three? Fair one. <laughs> top three? What is is there anything that, that that comes up repetitively that you could like do an FAQ on, possibly? <laughs> I think that there's a you know 
People who are not versed in science fiction, when they try and write a science fiction novel, mm. seems to always involve the President of the United States, aliens, and a stripper. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have, to, I have to jump in for a second. There's, there's an assignment that I do with my students where they have to list out like 15 archetypes and then 10 settings. And they have to take two archetypes that are the least likely to meet up and put them in the one setting that they're the least likely to, to show up in together. And inevitably, I would say half of my, half of my classes do president stripper, and then put them in some, you know, some like space <laughs> setting. So it may be my fault that all of that's coming in. I will hold you responsible. <laughs> no, but I'm sick of that. Um, the other thing too is that I, I the other the other thing it is from the from the from the from the people who are outside our field trying to get in is um, it's either that or Celestine prophecy stuff. Ancient Mayan civilizations. Ah, uh, yes. You know, in league with aliens and presence and strippers. Um, it, when you're looking at the, the young adult genre, uh, I think that, that the mistakes I see over and over, and I see this even from professional writers who write in the adult genre and are trying to transition, is uh, not letting the teen characters be the drivers. You know, mm. they're, 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 I, I had, I, I, I'm not going to name names, but I've, I've had a lot of adult writers write YA, and in the first pass of their manuscript, it'll start out great, and then about the halfway point, the adults will take over and start making all the all the, the hero moves. Yeah, gotcha. Standing on the sideline watching the adults save the day, and I'll just go and mark every one of those. You can't do that. You cannot do that. Your, your teens have to be the ones making all the saves all the way through, and and that's a very common mistake. Um, as is, I think, uh, for older people, particularly people with children, trying to write for children, forgetting how nasty children are. <laughs> yeah, sure. Leaving out the sex because they don't want to think about their own kids having it, and uh, and and you know, whereas you know when you were thirteen, all you thought about was sex. Sure. And, and so I think again, when writing YA, there's a tendency to not give the kids enough responsibility and not give the kids enough credit. Sounds like an authenticity issue. Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent, um, Lou. I, I I'm I'm putting together a promo for for the roundtable podcast, and I want to play you a segment uh, uh, because it deals with genre, and I and I have a something's going on with genre, and I'd like you to comment on it. But let me let me play this little snippet for you. Hold on. The genre of this story is a fantasy set in a space-like setting. It's a superhero western. It's a steampunk, dieselpunk fusion just because of the timeline that it's in. It's a supernatural horror story with just a bit of a detective thriller peppered into it. What is up with these kids today with these mashups? Don't they understand that the genre is one thing? You can't have a superhero western. Actually, I'm, of course, joking. Um, there, there's been a lot of, of genre boundaries being crossed, uh, or even just utterly erased. I mean, speculative fiction has become, uh, uh, the de facto term just because nothing's falling into any particular categories anymore. Is that something that you've noticed or is, and, and do you have any comment on that? Well, it, we've got a series out called the Vampire Empire series from Clay and Susan Griffith, who are married and still manage to write books together. And um, it is steampunk, vampire, alt-history, epic fantasy, pulp fiction, romance. <laughs> wow. <laughs> With cats. With cats. Oh, well, it's an instant New York Times bestseller. And it's, it's, it's been a real hit for us. And, and 
BNN's Explorations newsletter has proclaimed it the future of genre fiction because it knocks down so many barriers. Yeah. I think that ordinarily you get into trouble with more than two hyphens. You know, it's, it's kind of like juggling. When you're starting out, don't try and juggle ten balls at once. Pick one or two right. and, and learn to juggle first. So I think that beginning writers should, you know, superhero western, fine. Superhero western paranormal mystery, getting a little dangerous. <laughs> Some paranormal mystery erotica, we're probably off the table now. <laughs> right. Right. It, it work up to it, just like weightlifting. Yeah, but what yeah. what is it that, that has brought this about? I mean, I love it. It's fabulous. It's it's fresh. It's exciting. But but what? How? Why is it now that authors suddenly feel the freedom to to break out of those boundaries that for many decades were very rigid? Well, you know, I noticed this shift a few years ago, and it's um and it's generational too. I think to a large degree because. I remember going to a Worldcon over a decade ago, and there was a debate about whether or not tie-in fiction was a bad thing. And and a lot of the panelists were bemoaning the fact that two whole shelves or three whole shelves then were given over to tie-in fiction, and that was eating into the real stuff, and there was real resentment in all the Star Trek and Star Wars novels. Right. And I don't think anybody feels that way now. I don't think any anybody... You know, under forty-five feels that way. At least I feel like it's it's all good. You know, we're we're. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I'm ninety-nine hours into Skyrim. <laughs> I'm I'm reading comic books, and you know, I'm watching Doctor Who and and, and Game we're, of Thrones. And we're I, not acting our age, in other words. My 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 son and I are working our way through Avatar: The Last Airbender. <laughs> He's finally old enough. We can watch it together, and I, it's, it's all good. It's all good, you know. Whether it's your 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 music, or your movies, or your games, or your or your RPG games, or your or your books, or your comics, it's all there, and it's all good. And I feel like that that we we as a as a as a generation or, or the generation under us that I'm going to associate with because I'm just 17. Right, uh, right. In my mind. <laughs> Are, are really open to everything that's out there. And, you know, and this goes into something that you haven't asked me about, but, you know, if you're trying to write for a specific subgenre or category or demographic, you need to be reading that thing because what goes in comes out. If everything's going in, then everything's going to come out. But, you know, if, if you're going to try and write an epic fantasy, don't tell me you haven't read anything since Tolkien. Yeah. Right? You need to be reading... Trying to write epic fantasy, you'd be reading George Martin and Brandon Sanderson and Joe Abercrombie and all the names that you hear today. You know, if you try to write science fiction, you should not be reading Asimov. You mm-hmm. need Charlie Strauss and, and Ian McDonald and Robert Charles Wilson and John Scalzi and Diversify your palate. Contemporize your palate. Contemporize your palate. See what's selling now. Um, and uh, and so, but, but because of that, you know, what you are surrounding yourself with is what's coming out. And, and, and also, you know, I, we were talking about the sophistication of, of children's media with Land of the Lost. Land of the Lost in its day was incredibly rare. I mean, it wasn't just they went back in time and met dinosaurs. They went back not in time to a world with two moons where there were weird pylons that would open gateways to other worlds and there were a degenerate green sleestack race and there were dinosaurs and there were missing links and there were things falling out of the sky all the time and it was everything in the kitchen sink and it took me years to realize I, I was reading Charles Fort as an adult and I realized that it was the super sarcastic sea 
the region of space that Forrest said things fell into or fell out of. Oh, okay. The land lost. Because everything, when you go to land lost, you fall into it. You know, you, you, and, and whenever the holes open up, they always open up in the sky. You know, planes and astronauts and parachuters came through. Right. It was Charles Ford's Super Sarcastic see, but the point is, that was incredibly sophisticated. And I didn't see that level of everything in the kitchen sink in a cartoon again until Disney's Gargoyles. Which right. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And it's really, really good until they fire the creator. Um, <laughs> it, like so many things. But, um, cough community. <laughs> <laughs> Commentary by Lou Anders. <laughs> cartoons that are, I mean, my kid watches Phineas and Ferb, and they'll deal with three or four high-concept science fiction concepts per episode. Right. So, but your kid doesn't realize that. Your kid's just saying, hey, this is great storytelling. I'm entertained. Rock my world. Right. I talk about narrative structure. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. By the protagonist and the antagonist. But, um, you know, it, but this stuff is going in now, and so when if, if he decides to write when he's older, you know, he, he, we we, it's, we stand on the shoulders of giants, and 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 you know, I think it's a uh, Bill Willingham of Fables once said, "We have the smartest, or we live in a golden age because we have everything that's come before us feeding into this now." And uh, you know, we have one of the smartest um, viewing audiences ever because they've had a hundred years of 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 this genre to get where we are today, and we have all of that available to draw on. Yeah. I- I don't, yeah, but we've, damn it, Lou, we've got reality TV out there too. Come on, we've got The Bachelor. Really sophisticated but there's, audiences? There's story in that too. Oh, give me a break. There's not, but that's not, that's not, you know, that's not our community. Our community is That's true. Crazy that's true. You're right. You're right. They're going crazy about Game of Thrones and, and, and Doctor Who and. Yes, right. yes. But you, you can't say that, that producers don't don't look at the footage that is going to catch the attention of people the most and, and generate things out of that. Oh, right. I mean, we're totally, you know what I mean? We're turning into the Morlocks and the Eloy. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But, uh, I'm just talking about the Morlocks. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and gentlemen, I actually need to talk about the, this timer on my desk that not only has died, but has resurrected as a zombie, and and actually shambled out of the room, going brains, brains. So we I we actually need to, <laughs> it's a small timer. It doesn't have a deep voice. Um, no. So I, I actually need to call this to a halt. But Lou, this is this has been most entertaining, intriguing, and enlightening. And uh, we, and several other adjectives. Yes, other adjectives yeah. that I'm sure will come out in the post when I actually post this up on the website. So, yeah. uh, sir, thank you so very much for this time. We really appreciate it. My absolutely. Ah, good stuff. Brian, are you feeling it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got like 50 other things written down that, that we, for, for ones like this, we need to just beat the crap out of the timer and... <laughs> Keep it down so that we can continue going. But I understand the need for time. So you're a um, yeah, Lou, this has been fabulous. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's awesome. Yep. And thank you, dear friends, for hitting that play button. We hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. Uh, and and if that is indeed the case, then then feel free to express that joy, that that satisfaction, that contentment. Um, one way that you could do this is via a review at iTunes. Uh, or perhaps a comment on the comment of the post on the website. 
you know, and ultimately it comes down to letting people know that we're out there. Uh, spread the word. Uh, let the world know that uh, we have awesome people like Lou Anders coming on the show and sharing some sharing some writerly goodness with the crowd. So now, don't go anywhere. Well, actually, you can go somewhere, but uh, in a couple of days. <laughs> Uh, come back exactly thank you come back because we're gonna have Lou back and we're gonna workshop a fabulous story idea uh, and we're gonna take uh, take the Lou Anders perspective and apply it to an awesome tale Uh, so come back in a couple of days for that until then you're gonna need to bide your time you're gonna need to do something Brian what 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 can they do I don't know for now the best thing they can do is go right go right right on and uh, friends, you find what you're looking for. So, you know, while you're writing, look for the awesome stuff because I promise you, you will find it. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you in a couple of days. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode is copyrighted 2012 by the Roundtable Podcast and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means don't sell it, but you can share it all you like. And you can even use pieces of it in your own derivative work, as long as you attribute us as the source and release the work under the same licensing terms. Theme music composed and performed by the talented Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you'd like to be a guest writer or guest host, or learn more about the Roundtable Podcast, please visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Our Twitter tag is at writerspodcast or just send us an email at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.